Tim Lyles, you're a brave man. <laughs> so grateful for you and Lindy being here and your boy being here with you to give you support. He's going to be flying the coop before long. Uh, but to take this, to entertain this call, I suppose not yet confirmed, the congregation will act in classic Baptist fashion to do so in a few moments is an extraordinary thing. It's a sign of the kingdom of God. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like it for a, a, a minister of music to take a position without a senior pastor and to have to work with an interim pastor like me. I had the privilege of recommending Tim about six months ago. And what a strange, beautiful, unique providence it is that I get to work alongside this fine Minister Tim was a pastor to our kids, Chad and Mary Beth, for a short time in San Angelo. I think it was a year or so before Chad took a ranch up in Montana. Jana and I had the privilege of seeing Tim's ministry, of receiving Tim's ministry in that great church, a sister church to this congregation, Southland Baptist. I've preached there many times through the years. Uh, and uh, we have known each other. Hardy Clemens was very close friends with Martis Miley. I think Martis was the founding pastor of Southland, and Martis and Jeannie, dear friends to me also. So our two sister congregations, we're kin, and here we are uh, receiving the ministry of this, of this, of this fine uh, servant. And um, so... We are all walking this journey together. Uh, I'm glad to be back with you after a spell of two weeks being gone. We dedicated Graham Duncan uh, two weeks ago at Bread Fellowship, a uh, little baby boy, uh, to uh, Taylor and Bobby Duncan. I was there for that, of course. We had scheduled it for many weeks. And then last week, Jana and I were in Maine uh, on some uh, long-scheduled uh, vacation uh, beautiful place, and I'm glad to be back with you today. So, some years ago, Paul Duke led a retreat here. Some of y'all remember Paul, a marvelous preacher, one of our finest preachers, and he stood up before the congregation there in uh, Glorietta, and he opened this session something like this. Do you have division in your church? And people did about like that at that time. And then he continued his litany of questions. Do you have anger in your church? Do you have strife in your church? Do you have envy in your church? Is there any jealousy in your church? And then with each successive question, there was a little more unction of the spirit. And then Paul, with that perfectly timed pause, said, Congratulations, you have a New Testament church. <laughs> Matthew has a New Testament church as he writes this gospel account. Somewhere along about 50 to 70 AD, we're not sure. We're pretty certain Matthew's congregation. His, con his early congregation are Jewish Christians. This is some 20, 30 years after the ministry of our Lord. The teachings of Christ are very fresh in the minds of Matthew's congregation. 
and they don't quite, haven't quite fulfilled, incarnated the vision of their leader for them. Here 2,000 years later, we haven't quite fulfilled this promise, have we? We're still working at it. We're still practicing. I've told several people every Sunday for 13 years, Mary Louise Kingsbury told me the same thing, two words every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, keep practicing. And so here we are practicing our lines and implementing this vision and we're not quite fulfilled. We certainly hadn't come into any perfection. We're working at it. We continue to put these words into flesh, seek to do so. And so Matthew is speaking to a congregational setting. They know now that, that the kingdom of Israel is not going to be restored in the way that they thought it would be restored with military might and economic power and political prestige. That isn't the way of the leader, this strange, weird leader that the church has, that has given himself, poured himself out, we'll talk about that in just a moment, raised to, um, to eternal life with God and providing that path to every one of us. It's not the way to be large and in charge for this program. That's not the sort of uh, 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 agenda that God has for the church, the agenda of the world. It's not uh, their destiny to be in political might and power and influence, but they have this ragtag congregation. It's Jewish folks. It's uh, some Gentiles are coming into this community now. Uh, some tax collectors. These are the people who have defrauded these poor folks, and it's causing some disruption. Let's just say some division. And uh, so they remember these stories of Jesus from some decades earlier. And one story in particular, they remember Peter saying, Jesus, have you brought us only to this? Is this all you have for us? You can look it up in the previous verses in the, in the preceding chapter. We have left everything, and for this, where's my power? Where's my Christian nationalism? Where's my might, my money? And Jesus smiles, I think, and he says, Peter, that reminds me of a story. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner a vast uh, holder of uh, property. And he has a vineyard. And he, go, he tells his manager, we're going to do a harvest today. I want you to go down to the Texas Workforce Commission. I want you to get up early in the morning, round up those six o'clock folks. We're going to pay them a good, just, generous day's wage. That's what a denarius was. It was a day's labor for a common worker. Just think about what you make in a day, and that's what these folks were made. And they started at 6 in the morning, like farm workers would do in the cool of the day. And the manager went back at 9, and went back at noon, and rounded up some more at 3 o'clock, and made the same contract and same covenant with every bunch. We're going to pay you a day's wage. 
And then the manager went back an hour before quitting time just to see if there was anybody else that wanted to be a part of this project. And sure enough, there's some folks still at the Texas Employment Commission, the workforce agency, waiting to be put into the field at 5 o'clock. And then at quitting time at 6 o'clock, the manager comes and hands every one of those workers the same paycheck. The 6 o'clock folks began to grumble. Funny thing about that, isn't it? Human nature is utterly predictable. And they said, hold on, wait just a minute. We've been toiling in this field. We have borne the burden of the day in the scorching sun. Why are you paying the five o'clock bunch the same thing that you paid us? And the landowner comes out and says, did I not make covenant with you? Are you jealous of my generosity to all of you? Why, I've done exactly what I told you I would do. And then the story ends in the words of Jesus. This is the third time the same sentence is repeated in these brief gospel chapters in this gospel account. For the first will be last, and the last will be first. In the weird economy of God, God's, God owns everything. Now, I just think I own my annuity retirement account that I check about every five minutes these days. I just think that all that equity in my house in Fort Worth at 3824 South Drive and my yard and my, you know, trees, I just think I own that. I just think that old Buick 2008 that I'm still driving, that I own that. I'm getting to the end of my assets very quickly here. I just think that I have ownership of all of that. But that's really a myth. It's not ownership, it's stewardship. And when you've been on the planet long enough, you know that that is the case because you have seen your friends to leave all that and graduate to another place, another country, and not take those tangible assets with them. So right now, it is only stewardship. It is not ownership. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the scripture says. Now, I know a hill is not a metaphor that you West Texas people can relate to, so I'm going to put that in plain English. God owns the XIT, the four sixes, the King Ranch. What else am I leaving out? Big Ben, all together, times exponential times. The cattle on all those ranches belongs to God. God owns you and God owns me. We don't belong to ourselves, y'all. We belong to God. We are stewards of this gift of life. This planet would have spun very nicely had God never plopped me down on it. 
but God in God's untold generosity. So when I grumble about what I don't have, it's not mine to begin with. It's a covenant that my landowner, my master made with me. And God was faithful to God's covenant. For the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Not only does God own everything, God gives everything. All that you are, all that you have, all that you hope to be. And our posture is only gratitude. Thou hast given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart. Not thankful when it pleaseth me, as if thy blessings had spare days. But such a heart whose pulse may be thy praise. We just say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me wondrous salvation. So rich. So free. And we get in that place, sisters and brothers, nothing can injure us. Nothing can intrude upon us. Nothing can harm us. Nothing can infect us. That is what true wealth and health and wholeness is all about. This is what Jesus is trying to say to us. And didn't Ruthie do a magnificent job? Ruthie, I want to tell you something. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Look, Jesus ain't easy to read, Ruthie. And you did it magnificently. Thank you so much in these beautiful acolytes. Not easy to put these standards in this small little orifice here in these things. And our children did so great there. We're led by the children by the children, the children, because this pyramid is inverted. Children aren't running things under the dome in Austin, but they run things here. Children are first here. The most vulnerable are first in this strange, weird economy of God. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Everything I am, everything I ever hope to be, God has given all. Now, Paul puts this in his epistle to the Philippians, which essentially is a thank you note. Paul's writing from Rome under imprisonment and house arrest for a great gift that the Philippians are offering, that the Philippians have taken up for the missionary work. And Paul is writing a thank you note. That's what his epistle to the Philippians is all about. And he says that. He says, whether I die or whether I live is of no consequence to me because I don't belong to myself. I belong to God. So Paul is in this exquisite freedom. And this is, where, this is why we come to church, y'all. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we pray. This is why we fiddle with this path called faith. 
because we want to get in this place where Paul is, where we release and let go and where we place ourselves into the hands of God. Schleimacher, the powerful 19th century theologian that influenced Karl Barth, called it a posture of absolute dependence. We fling ourselves upon the absolute mercy of God. And this is what we strive toward. And so we are, we are seeking this, 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 this relationship of trust, of absolute dependence upon God. It's called, Paul says that what God did was pour God's self out in Jesus Christ. I pour myself out. It is canonic Christology, which means I empty myself. This is what God did for us because God has given everything to us. A little Greek lesson, little New Testament, it's kenosis. God pours God's self, empties God's self of all of God's holdings, all of God's wealth, all of God's standing, all of God's security. This is what God does in Christ. And so Paul says to the Philippians in the second chapter, have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I said to the early service congregation, if I could bore a hole in my head, and if I could pastorally drill a hole in your head, I would pour right into this place gratitude, the power of thanksgiving, of simply being grateful, profound appreciation. You know what the scourge of our spiritual lives is? The paralysis of comparative analysis. There's one of our ten great rules about this. Don't be coveting what your neighbor has. Because what you already have is enough. Enough. What would you do with more love in your life, y'all? If you had more money, how do you know that wouldn't be more of a confusing burden than a blessing. What would you do with more purpose? Holy cow, I got more purpose than I know what to do with. What would you do if you had more relationships? You can't manage the ones you have. It's enough. And this is what Jesus' famous parable is trying to tell us. The covenant has already been fulfilled by the householder. Simply be grateful. I love what John Milton wrote when he was stricken with blindness. You may not be aware that some of his most exquisite poetry was after he was blind. He dictated that stuff, if you can imagine it. Hearing that rhyme and that meter in his head and speaking it to his daughters as they wrote it down. Astonishing. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent 
to serve there with my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labor, light denied? I fondly ask. But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's works or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke. They serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed and post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Get rid of comparative analysis. It will kill you. You're a five o'clock person. I'm a five o'clock person. And we're a five o'clock congregation. God came back to us at the end of the day after the work had been done and said, come on, Charlie. You can be a part of my project of love too. Come on, second B. I know there's only the day is far spent, one hour left. But I want you to be with me. God owns you. God gives to you. God chooses you. God chooses you. Augustine said, God loves you as if you are the only one to love. And most preachers in the quote right there, but Augustine goes on to say, and God loves all of you as God loves each of you. We're on God's team. One of the most formative stories in my life is about my oldest brother, Lang. You've heard me tell it before. Lang was died a couple of years ago after a lifetime of alcoholism, uh, which is an awful disease, and you're familiar with it. Your loved ones have suffered from that disease. Uh, and every time I think about this story, I can see Lang's pleasure beaming at me over the balcony of heaven. When we were little boys, we would go to the Blunt Street Park and we'd play Sandlot football. In Alabama, football was, you know, the national religion, like in Texas. And uh, we would divide up into teams. Lang would be a team captain and Buddy Dodrell would be a team captain. And they would choose up teams and there'd be 15 of us or so. And Buddy would choose one and Lang would choose one and Buddy would choose one and Lang would choose one and there'd be two people left me and Hope, and Hope was a girl. <laughs> and Buddy would say, would choose Hope. And my six-year-old little frame would be left all alone, apart. And Lang would say, come on, Charlie. You can be on my team. And I'd saddle up next to him just like I was a first-round draft pick. And he would drape that lanky arm around my little body and pull me in close. And at dusk, we'd barefooted and shirtless 
Francis and Lang and me. We'd bound through the back screen door, Mama would be cooking, and over her shoulder she would ask, Lang, did you let Charlie play? Yes, Mama. Charlie was on my team. Can you feel the long arm of God around you? That householder just had a hunch that the five o'clock people were hoping, praying, longing that somebody would come employ them. Not only did that happen, the generosity of God is extended toward you. God poured himself out into you. The weird world of God. And we get to be in it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all the people of God said, Amen. Amen. It is my pleasure to extend the invitation of Christ to us. If this day would be the day, the appointment of the Holy Spirit for you to embrace Christ as your leader. He extends his outstretched arms waiting to drape them around you. And if you would dare to come and stand before this congregation in that faith affirmation, we would receive you with gladness and gratitude. If you would unite with this church by coming, giving your individual gifts to the collective gifts of this congregation. We need you now more than ever. I can say on good authority that this church will receive you and give you a place of service. There's room in the vineyard for you. That's the invitation of Christ to us. Let us respond as we stand and sing.